the sixth chapter. And just before we begin, grab your Bible, put it over your heart, and say this with me. This is my Bible, God's written living word to me. I'm going to change it up. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things from your law. The disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them to pray. As a response, he gave them what we're reading here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last time we had the opportunity to share and spend time in this new series, we were discussing verse 9. There are some thoughts regarding verse 9 that I'd like to return to this morning in an effort to just be sure that we've, we've done justice to all that Jesus was speaking to and telling us there. I've titled this series after the very first couple of words that Jesus spoke when he responded to the disciples. Verse 9 at the beginning, pray then like this. So the series is entitled, Pray Like This. This morning, we're going to talk about how to pray God's will. Does anybody want to know how to pray God's will? Is there anything that could be greater in our walk with God than to know His will and know how to pray it? You see, in my experience, when I pray God's will, I get answers. Have you ever felt like God's not hearing, not listening? Or that maybe your prayers are sort of bouncing, as they say, bouncing off the ceiling? Yeah, I have too. And I think it's at those times that we need to draw back, just sit and rest, and be a little more contemplative. And instead of rushing ahead with trying to find something to say, just wait in His presence. And follow the principles that He gave us here. What, what I want to say about this prayer called or referred to as the Lord's Prayer is that it's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer if we're going to label it anything. And what we have here is a template of values, a template of ideas, a a template of spiritual truths that we can bring into our prayer life. This prayer was never meant to be followed by rout. It was never never meant to be turned into a liturgy that would be repeated often. So as we remember that this is a template of instruction that, that Jesus gave to his disciples in response to their request, teach us, Lord. And what he was really saying is teach us how to have what they were requesting is teach us how to have a relationship with God. We we watch you. We we look at at you and watch your relationship with this, with God. You call him your father and it makes us hungry. It makes us desire what you have. Would you show us how to develop that? Teach us to have that kind of relationship with the Father. Teach us how to flow in the kind of life that we see you having, not only with the Father, but with other men, with other women. Teach us how to walk in the supernatural like you're walking in the supernatural. See, I, I really believe that rather than this being a liturgy that we're to repeat over and over as a special prayer I believe it's a template of instruction that provides us supernatural principles of how to walk like Jesus walked. 
how to enjoy a relationship with God like Jesus did. So last week, as we delved into verse 9, it opens with our Father in heaven. And the first and most important thing we learned about prayer is that it's relationship, not trying to get something from God or pain relief. How many of you know what I mean by pain relief? A lot of times we pray because we're in pain and so we're going to tell God about our pain and get relieved. <laughs> and, and it's not that you can't ever pray about things that are painful or things that you're troubled about. Certainly you can. But, but prayer is not for pain relief. Prayer is not to call out to God and get Him to give you something. Prayer is this dynamic living relationship with a being. In fact, He happens to be Father. He happens to be creator of the universe. Our Father. We learned that this relationship with Father begins not by something I do, but by something He already did. That we can even speak that name because it's in our DNA now. What do I mean? Well, you'll hear people say things like, the Lord be with you. God be with you. Do you realize that when we're saying those kind of things, we're expressing the very theology of distance. The Lord be with you. God will be with you. It perpetuates the theology of a distant God. You know, if you're in it, if you're in the right place at the right time, this is how people tend to think about God and think about prayer. If, if you're really in it, if you're in His presence, if, if, you can, if you're good, you know, some, somehow if, if you can find God's will in the future, and if you're good enough, if you're in it, if you're in the right place at the right time, it's nothing, and if nothing further, discuss God about your life, well then, God will be with you, and God will hear you, and God will answer your prayer. So we learned last week that rather than this theology of distance and, and performance where we have to try to perform for God to get His approval so that He'll answer our prayer, that actually we're one with Him. We, we live in His presence. He's in us. We live in Him. And so what He's looking for is just a relationship that's natural Hallowed be your name, verse 9 says. Hallowed be your name. See, after beginning our relationship with God, after starting prayer with the, with the proper revelation of who I am in Christ, with identity, who He's made me, that's my relationship. Prayer then moves into worship. Here's what the message translation says. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Isn't that good? I'm not running around struggling for things to say. I'm not trying to perform or be good enough. He's already made me the righteousness of God in Christ. He, he's not distant. It's not that God will be with me or that if I perform well enough, God will show up and answer. It's that I am right now in His presence. He's with me. He's wherever I go. I'm in Him. And as I recognize that identity, I move into that worship. Lord, reveal yourself. Lord, reveal yourself. Could we do something right now? Could I just ask you to quiet yourself and whatever you might be wrestling with right now? Any thoughts that you would be having, could I ask you to free up your hands? And I want you to use them. Whether you stick them high in the air or just out half-mast or whatever you're comfortable with. If you, if you want to just hold them on your belly. Now I'm going to be moving around, Jeff, so. All right, take your hands and let's do this together. Father. Would you just reveal yourself to me right now?
Now, see, a pregnant pause like that in a church service is uncomfortable. (laughs) And it's uncomfortable not only for us, but it's especially uncomfortable for those watching the video uh, or listening to this over the Internet that there would be a long silence. And so we, we can't spend too much time with that. But listen, the most important thing for us to do is not grab our prayer list, not grab our tickler of all the good performance we've had, not, not grab the list of things we need to ask for forgiveness for. No, the, the way to begin prayer is to just walk right into a, contempl- a contemplative place of awareness. I, I don't even want to say we want to get into His presence. You brought Him. We never use worship as a means to an end. Do you understand what I mean by that? We, we did not sing songs this morning as a means to get God to come down and be with us. He never left. He went home with you. You brought him here this morning. When I enter my time of prayer, God is immediately, immediately with me. I never use the Bible or Scripture or singing or anything. I I never use something to try to get God to be with me. I am immediately in His presence. You say, what if I'm aware that I've failed Him in some area? What, What if there's sin in my life? Well, God doesn't leave you when there's sin in your life. God doesn't turn away from you when there's sin in your life. In fact, even when I turn away from him, he takes his chair, moves around to in front of me, and gets back in front of me and sits down, facing me. God never leaves me. God is always with me. God climbs into my circumstances with me. And I'll I'll go a step further. God climbs into your messes with you and wants to embrace you in that. You are immediately in his presence because you are in Him and He is in you. And you have His DNA. And so we just, we just make a place for Him in our mind and our will and our emotions by saying, God, would you reveal yourself to me right now? See? Wow. We didn't even plan that. That's amazing. There's God. I don't know if that went on the recording here, but somebody's cell phone just just went off, and it was perfect timing. It's like, hello, yeah, maybe we should have answered it. Angelo, that could have been God calling. That's cute. So I'm in the presence of the creator of the universe, and so I, I, I just, this morning, I got up at 4, and I, I know that that's early, and it's just the time that I need to get up on Sunday to spend time with the Father and, and flesh out the rest of what he's given me to share with you. And so I, I was sitting on our, our couch, our sofa in the, in the family room there, and, and, and the lights, light was dim. It was still dark. And, and I just put my hands out, and I said, Father, I'm here. I don't even know what to say. I just want you to know I'm here, and I'm listening. I want to put my head on your breast And I want to put my ear to your mouth. I just want to listen. What a beautiful way to begin prayer. No lists, no confession, no got to get God. I'm just with him right now. You're with him right now. I, I just can't move off of this. You are with him right now. He doesn't leave you. When you get up and you leave the service today... You're not leaving God's presence. Never think that. Never think that because you're not in church service, somehow you've left His presence. And maybe through the week, if you do all the right things, if you perform, you'll be able to get God to come down and and visit you, and He'll listen to your prayer. No, God is immediately and always present with me. Reveal yourself to me, Father. Speak to me. And in that moment, I begin to think about his love for me. I begin to think about his awesome presence. I I think about his name, hallowed be thy name. Well, what is his name? It's Yahweh or Yehovah. We're not certain of the correct pronunciation. Obviously, you know, it's Hebrew and it's a verb. And it means becoming one. Listen to this. The name of God, Jehovah, is a verb that means becoming one. 
Jehovah, Yahweh. I want to become one. And, and that's not a, that's not a I, I wish I could. That's a, Lord, I just move, move all of the feelings, all the thoughts, all of the stuff, all of the soulish stuff out of the way so that I can recognize who you are. Reveal yourself to me right now. It also means God will become to you whatever you need. This is what the Hebrews believed. This is what the Jewish people believed. That God was becoming to them whatever they needed. Even the word shalom, nothing broken, nothing missing. God, you are my, you are my total. We're going to learn more about this next week at Genesis Factor. Which, by the way, am I given to understand we have a couple of syllabuses that were sent, extras? If you're not yet registered for Genesis Factor, it's $25 to register. That includes your syllabus and all of the food uh, and, you know, three days. I mean, two, two nights and, and a Saturday, most of the day on Saturday. Starts next week on Thursday. Register. We have six copies of the syllabus left. So, in Proverbs, we are told that the name Jehovah is a, quote, strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. God, right now, you are my deliverer. When David was saying, call out to the Lord. Just, just tell him, love him this morning. When he was saying that, I just started, you know, what came out of me by rote that I used to learn. And I had to stop and question myself. Holy, oh God, you're so holy. And that's good, and he is. But I found myself saying something out of a sort of a rote. I, I always say that. And so I stopped. Right here this morning, I stopped. And I said, I, I, I wonder what else I could pray. I wonder what else I could say to hallow his name. And I started thinking, well, you're also my deliverer. You're my financier. You're my joy. You're my peace. So I started saying, David, oh, God, you're my peace. You're my deliverer. I love you so much. How beautiful you are. You're incredible. See, that all goes into that hallowing his name. What do you need him to be? He is that for you. Then Jesus said, work this into your prayer relationship. Work this in to your conversation. Let, he goes on to the next idea. He says, here's another idea. Here's another value. Here's another principle of the supernatural that you can work in to your relationship with the Father as you pray. Watch this. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, what does Jesus mean, kingdom? Well, by definition, it's God's rule, God's authority, God's dominion. We could say that wherever God's presence is bringing the reign of Jesus, that's God's kingdom. Wherever God's presence is bringing the reign of Jesus, that is God's kingdom. Now, the Jews were waiting for a physical kingdom. This is one of the reasons that made it so hard for them to relate to Jesus and understand who he was, because they were expecting somebody who was going to come in majesty and glory and power, move the Roman Empire out, battle with them, bring them to naught, defeat them, and raise up the Jewish state and lead with kingly authority and beauty to deliver them. This is what was prophesied in their scriptures. This was their expectation of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus wasn't really any of that as he walked on the earth. But that's what they were looking for. Even up until the end of his ministry, after his death, burial, and resurrection, just before, during his last days on earth, we find that the disciples still didn't really understand this concept of kingdom. Watch what they say, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That was their expectation. They were Jews, even his disciples. 
After walking with Jesus for three and a half years and witnessing his relationship with God, their minds just, they were struggling because they were so steeped in the dogma of Scripture that they were struggling to perceive the oneness that Christ was bringing them into with the Father due to the new birth and the beautiful baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they said, when are you going to establish your kingdom? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24 tells us what God's going to do about that kingdom. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. There is coming a day when all rule and all authority and power on this earth is going to be put to naught. It's going to be set aside and cleared and the kingdom is going to be handed to the Father. There, there is a physical kingdom. There, there is a physical aspect to the king and the kingdom. And then we also have this supernatural reality called the new birth. Paul refers to it in Colossians 1 and verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So, when you were born again, Jesus took us and he took us out of one kingdom and he placed us in another kingdom. What is the definition of kingdom? Any place where the presence of God is bringing his reign. Right? So Jesus took us out of the presence, the kingdom, the reign of Satan and placed us into the reign, the rule, and the presence of Almighty God. But then there's another reality to this word kingdom. <clears throat> that this kingdom is within me. And it's among us. Listen, Luke chapter 17, verse 21. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, over there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, when Jesus said that, the context of his statement was during his healing ministry. When Jesus is healing by the presence of God, that's a manifestation of God's rule and his reign. When you see a healing, that's the manifestation of God's rule and his reign. That's his love coming and ministering. God's kingdom is physical. God's kingdom is a spiritual reality where we have been translated, transferred, put into a new kingdom. But dear ones, God's kingdom is among us when his presence is there and, and he moves and he heals and he touches people's life. That's God's kingdom. But it's also inside of you. Let's note Luke chapter 10 verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. You see, when Jesus sent his apostles, his disciples out and said, heal the sick in those cities that I'm sending you to and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Why? Because the kingdom of God is wherever God's presence is reigning and sickness and disease can't stand in the presence of God. Sickness and disease can't stay where the presence of God is in manifestation. Why? Because it has to bow its knee to the kingdom, to the rule, to the presence, the reign of Jesus. You know sickness can't stay in your body because that's where the presence is. Do you know sickness and disease can't stay in your limbs, in your organs, because that's where God's reign is being manifested? All right, stay with me. So it is a physical kingdom. It is a spiritual reality through the new birth. It is among us. When God manifests, for instance, healing. But I told you that it's also inside of you. Listen to Paul's words. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is righteousness? What is peace? 
What is joy? Are, thy, are those not all internal realities of the new birth? This new life we've begin, been given? Once Jesus came into my life, I began to experience righteousness. Once Jesus came into my life and I surrendered to his kingdom, his presence, his reign, then I began to experience a new joy. Once Jesus came into my life and I opened that door to him and I accepted his reign, I began to experience peace like I never had it before. Why is the kingdom of God righteousness, peace, and joy? Because that's the fruit of God's presence. That's the fruit of God's DNA. That's why even in the midst of adverse circumstances, terrible trouble in your life, you can grow quiet, grow contemplative, get alone with the Father, and draw on something inside of you far greater than that circumstance, far greater than that trouble that's going on. And God will help you just bring up out of that fountain it's like a well, all right? It's not an external stream. It's a, it's a well of water bubbling up within you. Righteousness, peace, joy in the midst of trouble. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I love the Greek word or meaning for the word come. Thy kingdom come. Listen to this. To come into being, arise. Come forth, show itself, find place or influence. When God's presence is bringing the reign of Jesus in our lives, the kingdom of God is finding expression. God has landed in me. God's kingdom has come forth and shown itself and brought the influence of righteousness, peace, and joy into my life. Now, that's interesting because he says, pray like this. Pray like how? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, if we're not supposed to just repeat that in a sort of liturgy, if this is a template, then what is the value we've just learned about thy kingdom come, thy will be done? He qualifies it. He defines it in the next statement. Help me. On earth as it is in heaven. Come on, let's say it all together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you something. What's going on in heaven? That's the qualifier to how you pray. What's going on in heaven where God's presence is reigning? Not my circumstances, not my experiences, not what another person tells me they think is correct. In heaven, it's all about God's reign, His rule. It's righteousness, peace, and it's joy. And He says, that is my kingdom, and that lives inside you. Now, why is that understanding of kingdom important? Because it's how I should pray. Don't pray your circumstances. Pray the kingdom. Don't pray your troubles. Pray peace, righteousness, and joy. Don't pray your bills. Pray righteousness, peace, and joy. Don't pray how bad it's going for your children. Pray righteousness, peace, and joy over them. I was on the phone with one of the spiritual mentors and leaders in my life, and we were sharing, and he was talking to me, sharing an area in his family that's very troubled right now. And he was asking for prayer. And so I began to pray right over the phone with this individual. Here's how I prayed. Father, I thank you right now that your peace is driving this situation out of this young man. 
It was prayer for a, a young boy, 13 years of age. Lord, I thank you right now that your joy is flooding his heart. Lord, I thank you right now that your peace, there's all kinds of circumstances in this young 13-year-old's life that have driven him to the point of suicide. And I, I prayed. I wasn't asking God to change something. I wasn't asking God to do anything. I was operating as God in the prayer, functioning out of the kingdom revelation of righteousness, peace, and joy. And I just begin to declare and speak righteousness, peace, and joy into this young boy's life. Father, thank you right now that your righteousness, your peace, your joy is released in his very bones, in his bloodstream. I thank you, Father, that your spirit is taking over his thought life and driving out all thoughts of ending his life. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you are there with him and that he has a new revelation of how much you love him. See? How can I pray that way? What gives me the right? By, by what authority? Where do I find the gumption to be so bold, so presumptuous as to know what God would do for this young man? Because that's the kingdom. The kingdom is not meat and drink. It's not my circumstances. It's not my troubles. It's not what I can see with my eyes. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. And whatever is going on in this young person's life, I knew this. God loves him. God's there right now, no matter what they feel like or what they're encountering or experiencing. And so I just begin to declare kingdom realities into this young person's life. When you pray, release the image of Jesus and the activity of heaven into the person or circumstance that you're praying for. Let me give you an example. Jesus said in John chapter 20 and verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, then it is withheld. Now, This idea, you might find it similar to something else you, you know or have heard in reading Scripture. Doesn't that sound a lot like this passage, Matthew chapter 18, verse 19? Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All of this has to do with you functioning in the spiritual authority and oneness of Jesus through your words. The force of God's rule and reign. Now, this concept of binding and loosing was not new to the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to. This actually is a rabbinical term and phrase, which means forbidding and permitting. The rabbis were very familiar when Jesus said and spoke about releasing or holding sin, forgiving, remitting, or not sin. They knew exactly what he was talking about. When Jesus said, whatever you bind and whatever you loose, all the rabbis and religious leaders and even the people of, you know, the Jewish people knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. It was this rabbinical principle, once again, of forbidding and permitting. In other words, by these words, Jesus was virtually investing in his disciples the same authority that the scribes and the Pharisees found when they would do things like this. Let me read. Matthew chapter 22, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do, and they observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Because of this issue of authority, spiritual authority, 
there can be a bondage in somebody or put on somebody through words that you speak that the rabbis were very familiar with. They were very familiar with forbidding or permitting. For instance, they could just declare a day holy. They could just declare that this Sunday, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it on this Sabbath. And everybody had to follow it. And yet they didn't follow it, Jesus said. And he said, look, I'm giving you a much higher kingdom authority to release and to hold, to loose and to bind. And he says, whoever sins you forgive, they will be forgiven. And whoever's sins you, with, you hold, they will be held. They will be forbidden or permitted. What's he saying? You have the power through the gospel to, to tell people about this beautiful inclusion of how God reconciled them to himself. And you can look them right in the face and say, your sins are forgiven you because of what Jesus Christ did for you. And not only has he forgiven you, but his presence is here right now. Do you have a need I could pray for? Do you have something going on in your life? I'd be happy to pray with you about that right now. By what authority do you do that? By the power of the kingdom. Jesus referred to it as releasing people from sin. Forgiving sins. I can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. But operating as God in the earth with his DNA, I can declare his righteousness, peace, and joy to somebody who doesn't yet follow him, to a lonely heart who doesn't yet know him, to a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody I've met in line at the store, somebody I happen across at the park while I'm walking my dogs. I can share with people the kingdom. I can bring forgiveness to people. I, operating in the kingdom of God, can inform people, you're released, (laughs) you're free, God loves you. He's brought you to himself and forgiven you of your sins. This principle of operating in the kingdom, Jesus said, As in heaven, so on earth. Just ask yourself, what's going on in heaven? That's what he wants to do in the earth. You never need to doubt that God wants to heal somebody. It's never not God's will to heal somebody. It's never not God's will to bless somebody and help them. It's never God's will to not... It's never not God's will to turn adverse circumstances around and help them in their life. And so I come alongside them through the power of the Holy Spirit in the presence of God's kingdom and I declare to them, you're reconciled to God. His kingdom has come now. It's on the earth. And so I just declare to you in Jesus' name, you're free, you're released, peace to your spirit, wholeness to your heart. Look at this, Luke chapter 5 and verse 20. You know the story of how that there was a paralytic bound, bed bound. And he was carried to a meeting that Jesus was conducting at a house. The house was so full that people couldn't get into it. And so the people that were bringing this man on his bed climbed up on the roof and tore a hole in the roof and let this man down on his bed through the hole in the roof. Imagine the size of the hole. Right? They didn't like stand him up and drop him down through the center, you know. (laughs) Here he comes. Somebody catch. The man was a paralytic and couldn't get off his bed. They carried him to the meeting on his bed, climbed up on the roof. And the scripture says they tore a hole in the roof and let him down into the room where Jesus was speaking so that He could get to Jesus because there wasn't any way to get him inside the house otherwise because of the throng of people. Jesus, seeing their faith, heals the man. In verse 20 it says, When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins 
are forgiven you. I want you to think about something. Now, this, this got the religious people all upset that Jesus thought he could forgive sins. And they started accusing him and getting after him. And Jesus said, which is easier to do, forgive sin or heal the boy? <laughs> What's your problem here? Now, I, I want you to entertain something. Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross. And he was forgiving sin. Let that set. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? And they brought her to Jesus, threw her on the ground, and there was a, a crowd mostly of men, I'm sure, and, and they had stones in their hand, and they were ready to stone the girl because the scriptural law, Old Testament Jewish law, said she should be stoned to death. So they got ready to kill her. Jesus stooped down in the dirt and wrote something we'll never know what in this life. We can only imagine. And then he looked up and he, he spoke to all of them and said, Let the first one among you who is without sin, let the one who is among you without sin cast the first stone. You could hear the rocks dropping. And they all turned and walked away. And Jesus said, to the woman. Woman, where are your accusers? Remember that? She said, Lord, they've all left. Remember what he said next? Neither do I accuse you. Who was he speaking for? God, the Father. Jesus was the Father. Everything Jesus did was the Father. Jesus is the Father manifest in the earth. Neither do I accuse you. Now, question. Had Jesus gone to the cross yet to die for sins? How did he forgive that woman of her sins? <laughs> All right, let's look together. Colossians chapter 2. Well, I've run out of time. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the uncircumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. You know what we call that? Co-inclusion in his death. Co-inclusion in his burial. And watch this. In which you were also raised with him. You were, say it, I was raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were co-crucified with him, you were co-buried with him, and you were co-raised from the dead. And when that happened, when God performed that, all of the issues of flesh and sin were stripped off you. He calls it circumcision. Now, Jewish males listening to this knew exactly what that was about because every Jewish male got circumcised by the age of seven to eight, right? Days old, right? Which was what? Well, I assume you understand what circumcision is, but just real quickly, biologically, the cutting away of the foreskin of the male anatomy, right? God is drawing a spiritual kingdom principle here to natural anatomy of circumcision and said there was a spiritual process that happened for everyone. I redeemed them. I reconciled man. I took, listen to me, somehow, I, I don't understand how, but in the man Adam... All of humanity was gathered up and all of humanity died and became sinful, Paul says in Romans 5. But also in the man Jesus, all of humanity was gathered up. And in Jesus, 
they were reconciled to God and made righteous and placed in both the physical and spiritual kingdom of God. Now, there's something else that happened. Because you were co-buried, because you were co-crucified, co-buried, and co-raised with Jesus, there's a spiritual or supernatural circumcision which took place in your spirit being, in your person. Look at it. In Him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. I'm not talking about your, spirit, your natural anatomy here of the foreskin. I'm talking about something that supernaturally happened to you when you believed on the Christ. What, what happened? He put off the body of flesh and he buried it by verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God made us alive with him, forgiving all of our trespasses. What else did he do? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. All of the do's, the don'ts, touch not, taste not, you're not good enough. You've got to perform to please God. You've got to go through the checklist. Have you done this? Have you read your Bible? Have you prayed? Have, have you loved people well today? Have you, you know, all of these things, which are good things. But the Bible says he takes everything that's a legal requirement that would affect your relationship with God or cause you to have to perform, and he nails it to the cross with all of its demands, and he sets that thing aside. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in it. Now, Last week, in my message, at the very end, practically the last thing I said, and I've gone back and listened to the message so I could get it correct. Was similar to verse 15 here in terms of its totality. In terms of its global Oh my gosh, God did this thing for me. Verse 15 again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them in it. Or in him, in Christ. That's why I don't believe in giving the devil any room. That's why we don't talk about the devil much. That's why we don't glorify the devil. That's why we don't sing songs about the devil being after us. That's why we don't, you know, we just don't spend much time on the devil. Why? Because Jesus triumphed over these powers and principalities and he disarmed them. You know, there's no sense in fighting constantly with a foe that's been disarmed. If ISIS were actually completely disarmed and had no more power or might to affect people's lives, would we continue to be concerned about them? Would, be, would we be running? Would we be afraid? Would we be doing all of the things that we've initiated to protect our country in our airports and so forth, if they had no power, if they could do nothing anymore, whatever they are using was completely removed and they were just human beings on the earth without any kind of power to influence, wouldn't we kind of forget them? Wouldn't we just sort of dismiss their presence and not make a big... Wouldn't it be foolish for us to continue to talk constantly about ISIS, 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 if they had no more power, no more weapons, and could not hurt anybody any longer. The devil is ISIS. He's been disarmed. He's been destroyed. I'm just making an analogy now. God dealt with him. This is like such a total principle here. Now, last week in my message... I made a statement about sin. Here's what I said, verbatim, quote, Sin is not a big deal to God. 
Now, in the same spirit that Paul would write, he disarmed the devil. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over all of these powers. Sin is a big deal to God because it gets in the way of your fellowship and relationship with God. Sin isn't sin because God has a moral list of things that he doesn't want you doing. Sin gets in your way of having fellowship with the Creator. And by the way, sins are never the issue. Smoking, drinking, running around, adultery, fornication, pick your sin. That's not the issue. The issue was is that sin is a disease that entered through what Adam did when he made the choice that he did. And Jesus took care of the disease. Jesus destroyed the disease. Now, I'm simply saying to you by saying sin is not a big deal to God. I don't mean to treat sin lightly, to be just dismissive of it, pretend like, Oh, okay, well, that's a license for you to go out and do whatever you want now. Live however you want because God doesn't really care about your lifestyle. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul had to wrestle with that same criticism in his day because of the message of grace that he taught and comments like he makes here in Colossians that the devil's power has just been wiped out and destroyed. Quit paying so much attention to him. He had to deal with that same thing. What are you doing, Paul? Is it okay now for people just to go out and sin? Or are you saying, go ahead and sin all the more so that grace will increase? (laughs) Paul says, may it never be. Do you not know that to the thing you sow, of that thing you will reap corruption? If you sow to the flesh, you're going to of the flesh, not from God. You're of the flesh going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, then you're going to from the Spirit reap life. So sin is a big deal in that sense, but listen to me, dear ones. Jesus took care of the disease of sin. It's no longer an issue. What's left over is behaviors and thoughts that have been steeped into my mind that cause me not to be able to fellowship with God in this pure way because even when I sin, it never touches my spirit. I never sin with my spirit. You're sinning with your mind, your will, and your emotions. God says, look, I brought you out of that. I handled the enemy. I put you in Christ when he died. I buried you. You were raised with Christ when he rose from the dead. And now I've even circumcised you. I've taken that disease of sin, your foreskin, your spiritual foreskin of that disease, and I've cut it off of you. I've stripped you of it. You're free. You've been spiritually circumcised and made free from the disease of sin. Now walk in it. Walk as a child of God that's redeemed and reconciled to the Father. Now, you say, how do you wind up there From our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God's will for earth is Jesus. And what Jesus did for all humanity in co-including all humanity in his death, burial, and resurrection, we need to tell everybody. We need to let people know that they were co-included in what God's already done and that they're already reconciled to God and that the issue in their lives is not sins. That's why I never preach sins from this pulpit. I don't talk about sins. I don't make a big deal out of homosexuality or drinking or being drunk or adultery or all those things. Because I know that if I preach that, you will go out and it will be multiplied in your life ten times over. Because the strength of sin is the law. 
do not, taste not, touch not, don't do that, you can't do that, God's not pleased. But if I preach how that you've been included in the death, burial, and resurrection, if I tell you how you've already been circumcised, the disease of sin was stripped from you and destroyed, and its power is useless and has no longer any ability to keep you from the presence, and then I tell you how you can enter in through this glorious kingdom presence of God into a life and fellowship with the Father that's so real. If I tell you that, then even when you're wrestling with something that you know is not pleasing to the Father, that's keeping you from fellowship with Father that you want, you'll be able to deal with that issue of sin much better from a place of grace than law. Well, I don't know if you heard me. Could I get at least an amen on that point? Now, here, here's the catch, though. I know I've gone long, forgive me. This will just be one of the longer ones. I, I, I'm really almost done, but... See, we might be open enough. We, we might, in our, our prayer, say, Father, I, I, I don't understand all this gospel of inclusion, but, because, Lord, it's just not like what I was taught in Sunday school, but, but Lord, teach me. Open my eyes that I, I might see and understand what you did by co-including me in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm open to that. But where we never make the transition is that God did that for your unsaved neighbor. God did that for the homosexual. God did that for whatever other lifestyle you want to stick a label on and say, that's wrong, you can't be close to God, you can't know God until you get forgiven and clean that up. How are you going to pray righteousness, peace, and joy for a homosexual if you think they're going to hell? If they don't repent. If they don't repent and turn their life around, they're outside of God, God's grace, they're going to go to hell. Well, how are you going to pray righteousness, peace, and joy? When you're having lunch with a lesbian friend, how are you going to hold their hand and say, man, I just want you to know, God loves you. God's crazy about you. And, and you know what? I just right now, is there anything I could pray with you about? You would pray with a lesbian in a heartbeat. You would pray with a gay person in a heartbeat. Is there anything I could pray with you about? Yeah, my, my shoulder's been hurting. Could I just, could, would it be okay if I put my hand on your shoulder? Well, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I just release your peace and your joy and your righteousness into this shoulder. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Tell me in which situation do you think that individual whose lifestyle is outside of the kingdom reality of God's best, tell me in which reality you think that person is most likely to open their heart to the truth of the gospel and maybe come to church. The one I just demonstrated for you? Or the one where you see Christians? Hell and damnation. Hell and damnation. Signs. Carrying placards, signs, God hates fags. You're going to burn in hell. Tell me which one is the gospel. Tell me which one is the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Quit seeing people with labels that God has not given them. Start seeing them as the person Jesus died for was buried and rose again because you were dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive together with him. God made you alive together with him. I've got to stop. Stop.